ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the episode that Arthur Lawrence, Charles Strauss, and Richard Maltby Jr. sure don't want you to hear. Mm-mm. It's monkeys and playbills, y'all! Hello, everybody. That's Paul DeGurse. That's Jillian Willems. Also behind the board is producer Daphne Finlayson. Sup. And we're here... Back with another episode, New Year, New Episode. New Year, New Strauss. New Year, New Strauss. (laughs) I think it's really exciting that we managed to, over the course of two back-to-back episodes, cover Charles Strauss's best show, and now probably his worst. I wonder if we could do a whole season of Strauss's. (laughs) Seasons of Strauss. I was going to say, the question is, would anyone listen? No, Would we retain not. any kind of listenership, or does that sound like a terrible miniseries? Well, we're going to find out how far we can really go with today's yeah, musical. Absolutely, we are. Um, before we do that, we should talk about what this podcast is for first-time listeners. If you're just tuning in now, please go back and listen to another episode first, because this is going to be a weird <laughs> one. Because here on Monkeys and Playbills, we talk about Broadway shows. Broadway shows that had runs of 100 performances or fewer on Broadway. And what the heck happened? And today we're talking about 1991's famous flop, Nick and Nora. Ooh, we should just get right in. What do you think? Is there anything we need to tell people about before? Well, I was going to say, it's been, a, it's been a while since I've seen this show. Um, I first saw it when I was a... Um, a teenager, and I know like the jury's out on Michael Sarah. You know, this was around the same time as Scott Pilgrim and mm-hmm. Juno, and I love both of those. Mm-hmm. And so this, even though it's a bit twee, this piece um, is very close to my heart, has some nostalgia. I think a young Cat Denning is very good in it. Um, and At what a lot point of do I jump in and stop this bit? <laughs> what, 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 what bit? What's, uh, what's, what's, oh, Paul, what's the bit? did you watch that Nick and Nora in preparation for yeah. this Nick and Nora? Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. I can't um, wait for us to try yeah. to draw parallels <laughs> for the next two hours. <laughs> That's all I had to say, so let's get into it. <laughs> Previews began at the Marquee Theater on October 8th, 1991. It opened on December 8th, 1991. And it closed December 15th, 1991, after 71 previews and nine performances. So if I'm not mistaken, they held the record for most previews until Spider-Man. That's absolutely correct. And as we talk about the development of this show, we probably will draw some comparisons in that regard, Mm -hmm. uh, which I'm very excited about. This is probably the most we're going to talk about Spider-Man on an episode so far, which is very exciting. On an episode that is not the Spider-Man episode. Absolutely not. So this musical, Nick and Nora, it's based on a series of books, a series of kind of gentleman detective whodunits. Yeah. um, About this married couple, this very, it's very Noel Coward-ish. You know what I mean? There's a lot of... Okay, yes, you're so on the money there. They're a married couple who solve mysteries together, but they're always kind of drinking. They're drinking a lot. And they're um, always kind of bantering. It's that kind of banter where it's like, wait, do you actually hate each other? But these, um, these were so popular that they were made into a series of movies. The, the Thin Man. The series of movies are all The Thin Man. Mm -hmm. And then was turned into a Broadway musical in the, um, late 1980s, early 1990s. We have a philosophy here at Monkeys and Playbills that we're going to continue to use. That we should always approach a musical, even if we didn't like it, like it's someone's favorite musical. Um, we've done better at that, uh, sometimes than others, but I think in general, we've walked a pretty fine line of being generous to a show about its good parts, even if it's something that we really don't think, um, nailed it. Mm-hmm. This is, I don't say this easily, and this isn't, this is probably the only time I'll ever say this. If Nick and Nora is your favorite musical, you're wrong. <laughs> this is no one's favorite musical. But maybe more than that, I, I really, really need to know why. Please reach out. Please get mad at us. I would love to know why this is your favorite musical. So as I mentioned, this had nine weeks of previews. And this would have been 1991. And then 2015 was when... Oh, sorry. 2012. Yes. Yeah. So then it was 15 weeks of previews for Spider-Man. So if that gives you any idea, like, as far as... Because in 1991, I was like two and a half, like when this... 
play was going on. So I didn't really have any present day context for that. You weren't part of the dialogue yet. Exactly. And then it's like, (laughs) Spider-Man is my way of conceptualizing just how long those previews could be for Nick and Nora. Absolutely. And also, I think what a, not a scandal, but like a, what a curious thing that was in the Broadway community. There was like, what's going to happen with Nick and Nora? It's such a disaster. It's never going to open. It keeps on previewing. What's going on? The, the same thing that was happening with Spider-Man in 2012. Like, will it preview forever and just never open? Exactly. Because yeah. I'm sure there were those conversations. Some say it could still be previewing to this day. Uh, we'll never can't... know. We'll never know. Nick and Nora has been dead for 20 years. <laughs> exactly. And then, so is that where Nick and Nora's infinite playlist gets its name? Is from Nick and Nora's <laughs> infinite previews? Infinite previews. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually the original script, I believe, for Nick and Nora's infinite yeah. playlist was about the development of this show. And yeah. it just kept on getting rewritten and rewritten yeah, and until whatever like it was, 2006. And for the yeah. contemporary audience. <laughs> and all of a sudden it's about two indie rock kids who trips around New York for a night. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take it. Whatever. So there really isn't much to talk about in terms of show history. And we have talked about Strauss a couple times now, I think. Yep. Uh, We've talked about Arthur Lawrence back at our uh, Anyone Can Whistle episode. Arthur Lawrence, one of the preeminent directors and uh, book writers uh, of Broadway history. Mm Mm-hmm. So preeminent that um, he's written the book for two of arguably the greatest musicals of all time, West Side Story and Gypsy. So should we talk about the synopsis a little bit? Should we play that fun game? Absolutely. This is going to be a challenging one. I've already warned Jill in advance, especially for character names. It's really hard to keep track of everyone in this show, but I'm going to do my best. We're going to put five minutes on the timer and Jill is going to help me a lot to get through this. I'll try. So here we go. Ready? Yep. Three. Two, one, go. Okay, so we start on a blank stage. Very soon, things are wheeled on. And it's kind of, there's like a chaise lounge and um, a cocktail, a little like portable cocktail bar. Mm-hmm. And like I, like I said before, a very, very Noel Cowardian um, yes. uh, environment. And we meet Nick and Nora. And they're very much in love. They love to dance. They love to uh, drink quite a bit. It's actually shocking the amount of alcohol they consume over the course of this <laughs> But it is the musical. 30s. It is the 30s, exactly. And they love to solve mysteries together. And it's a good... Th- <laughs> right? They Sorry. do. Kind That's- of, but yes. <laughs> no, is that not the exact... What do you mean kind of? That's the exact premise of this show. Okay, well, we'll agree to disagree, but I'll come- okay, we'll talk well- about this later. <laughs> All right, sounds good. Already, we're off to a great start. <laughs> so... In walks Tracy Gardner, played by Christine Baranski, and is an old friend of Nora's. She's an old school friend. And she's like, and she's an actress now. She's a Hollywood actress. And she's like, you've got to help me. Someone involved with the movie I'm filming has been killed. And my producer is now in jail. And so the um, production on the show has been shut down. So can you come help me um, help us solve this mystery? And they say, sure. So then we... Um, cut to, I should also mention big, long scenes in this. Lots of big, long, like this kind of um, shaped more like an old school play, which is kind of nice, kind of refreshing. Mm-hmm. We find ourselves on the set. Nick and Nora say, yes, absolutely, we'll help you. Christine Baranski sings about nothing really of importance. Virtually none of these songs actually have much effect on the plot. Um, yep. One of many things that I have a problem with in this show. But she sings about how she's doing a musical because everyone wants to do a musical. Possibly the most famous song from this show. Yeah. Maybe the only one I actually knew beforehand. Okay, I knew none. So Very I'll yeah. have to take your word for it. Fair enough. <laughs> um, and so from there, really quickly, this show just ends up being a whole a parade of meeting characters, meeting potential suspects. It becomes a whodunit very quickly. Max, the director, is in jail. He's very quickly released from jail. And we start to meet a bunch of different characters. A sketchy friend who's been hanging around the film set named Spider. A detective who's um, investigating this murder as well, named Lieutenant Wolf with an E. Mm-hmm. Max's um, Japanese servant. Is there any better way to say I that? I think it's Tracy's, yeah, employee, if I'm not yeah, mistaken. Yeah, that's a Japanese employee um, who's portrayed in just a despicable manner. Um, who And we'll, we'll get to that. Um, we'll get to that a little bit later. So we meet all these, we meet this cast of characters and... 
we go about learning about their different motives or different relationships with the um the woman who was killed. Oh, and the woman who was killed is Lorraine Bixby, who's played by Faith Prince. Mm-hmm. So we go about learning about their different motives. And each time we do, we kind of do almost like a Rashomon thing where we see the murder replayed the way they're describing it. Yes. So that's why even though Lorraine, played by Faith Prince, is not alive in this show at any point, she still has a fairly prominent role. Yes. About halfway through the show, Nora's taking the lead on this investigation and Nick is like acting as assistant. But about halfway through, Nora's like, I... This is too hard. And Nick's a real dick to her and is like, oh, I'm going to take over. We'll see who solves this first. (laughs) And you're like, are you sure you're married and you love each other? Like, is that really? Yeah, we believe you, question mark. They go about throughout most of the second act, kind of trying to solve it on their own. Mm -hmm. Um, We end up meeting... Lily is the wife. Lily is the wife. And we meet... um, Maria? Maria Valdez, who is a, um, a Latina woman who works in a um, in a club, in a dance club, mm-hmm. and has been told by the producer that if she sings there enough and sings um, like um, sexually suggestive songs, then she'll get a part in movies. Yep. Once again, not portrayed as a scathing indictment of the entertainment industry, but as something that's cute and funny, because <laughs> this musical's bad. Um, <laughs> and finally, we get to the end of the show where it's, um, you know, there's all sorts of twists and turns that aren't really twists and turns. And we get to the end where it's revealed that Edward J. Connors, who's a character we keep on hearing uh, about. kind of that is time. Oh! Oh! That's fair. All right. To put a button on it really quick, then the end of the show is one character who we thought was alive is actually dead. And Tracy was actually um, pulling all the strings. Christine Bransky was actually pulling all the strings and was behind this uh, series of murders. Oh, God. So much to unpack. Okay, I will read to you a synopsis I found on broadwaymusicalhome.com. Nick and Nora are a married couple, so that answers that question. Very good. Who, in the midst of trying to solve a murder, find not only problems with the case and suspects, but also in each other. They cooperate to get all the suspects to come to the big tambu, where another murder takes place and the murderer is discovered. So the Big Tambu is the nightclub yep. that Maria performs at. And I thought, correct me if I'm wrong, no one actually dies in that second murder. I didn't think so. I thought it so. seemed like someone did, but it's the, the, the lights all go off. And then yes. it's revealed, and it seems, you hear gunshots and it seems like someone died. But then it's revealed yeah. that that was just, Nora's plan was as soon as something weird was happens, she was going to take out a gun and fire it in the air a couple times to distract everyone. Yeah. It's very weird. <laughs> It's so strange. And okay, I will preface this by saying I am not, nor have I ever been familiar with the Nick and Nora stories. Neither am I. So I don't know actually how much of this is taken directly from the book. Yeah. But yeah. I, I this morning watched some clips from the Thin Man movies on YouTube. Ooh, okay. Tell me. If the, if the Thin Man movies are anything to um, go by, this mov- this musical really captured the vibe, unfortunately. <laughs> like it's a, they look they look fine they're very much like yeah gentlemen detectives moving around high society and everyone kind of talks with the like a like a mid, yeah. mid-atlantic affected accent kind of thing um what do you mean exactly exactly fast and... oh, you have to go investigate mr mcgillicuddy because he's the he's the gardener <laughs> <laughs> or whatever right <laughs> exactly <sighs> so i'm gonna list off who did what here yes great idea um, and then we can talk about the book, the music, and the lyrics. Oh, I would love to. Book by Arthur Lawrence. Music by Charles Strauss. Lyrics by Richard Maltby Jr. Welcome back. Music orchestrated by, I think, first-timer Jonathan Tunick. Oh, yeah. Brilliant right? Jonathan Tunick. Dance and incidental music by Charles Strauss as well. Dance and incidental music arranged by Gordon Lowry Harrell. Uh, based on characters created by DeShiel Hammett, based on the Thin Man motion pictures owned by Turner Entertainment Co. All right, let's talk Arthur Lawrence. Arthur Lawrence, I want to highlight one more time, the argument can be made that he's been involved with a couple of the best Broadway musicals ever, West Side Story Mm -hmm. and Gypsy, and it's important to state that one more time because he does not come out of this one smelling like roses. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. Okay, so we have the classic Arthur Lawrence book, which is Everyone's Talking Really Fast, and it's 100 and 
30 pages long. So long. I feel like any book that's that the resolve of the story is rooted in racism should not be happening. I agree completely. <laughs> so let's 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 call a spade a spade there right now yeah. and explain what it is is the Japanese employee character named Yakito has been throughout the entire um, entire play speaking with a uh, like a really affected uh, uh, Japanese accent. Um, mm-hmm. It's written written out phonetically in the script. It's awful. It's terrible. Very bad. Yeah. Don't do it. And then the one the big twist at the end is Nikonora. I can't remember which catches that his accent slipped a little bit. There was like a, a mistake in logic. Oh wait, he actually doesn't speak with an accent at all. And this is the reveal that. That, that kind of unravels this whole thing that this was set up by uh, Christine Bransky. Arthur Lawrence, that sucks. Like, come on. It's 1991. This is 1991. This is, pa- we've passed the mega musical boom. Cats has happened. Miss Saigon has happened. Les Mis has happened. Phantom is up. Mm-hmm. And somehow this is still happening. And even after two months of rewrites, you were, and pure reprocess, you were not like, maybe we should do something about this. So, barring that, barring that automatic fail, very bad, don't do it, mm-hmm. what do you think of this book? I think I'm pretty up on the old school references, more yeah, so, so than too. contemporary references. Yeah. Like, if someone's doing a TikTok dance, I won't recognize it, but no. I, I might recognize a reference to, I don't know, uh, Lucille Ball. I don't know. Anyway. I felt like even a person like me who's pretty up on the references to old Hollywood and that time period, I was lost more than I was a part of it. Like, I think the way that it was written where I couldn't tell what was actually important and what was like something they were supposed to be joking about because just the, the pacing and the structure of the dialogue really had me confused. And that means, that meant as well, I agree completely. And that meant as well that a lot of pretty shitty stuff, just um, shitty both politically and shittily, shitty just in my opinion, kind of shitty writing, just slips by because they're talking so fast and yeah. nothing ever has any significance. So you'll slip in something that's really misogynistic or mm-hmm. either that or something that like really is a weird place in the story to put a, um, to put a plot twist. Yes. You know what I mean? Like this... Um, this reveal that, um, what's his face might actually be dead. Ed Connors kind of comes like halfway through act two, but then that thread just dangles until I the know. end of the show, you know? And they just kind of mention it really. They, they solve the, the mystery halfway through act two, but don't say that they have. They just kind of spew it out and you're supposed to be, and you're left the rest of the show being like, okay, but what, that, that was a big twist. Can we address that? That should change everything. I know. I've, uh... I, yes, I really struggle with that. I struggle with the misogyny, which we actually saw in uh, Anyone Can Whistle a little bit. Like, it's kind of the underlying thing here for Lawrence. And I don't, just in the stuff I'm familiar with, I should say. I, I can't speak yeah. to all of his work because he did also, like, write Mama Rose. But the dynamic between Nick and Nora was quite alarming, which you alluded to a little bit as we were kind of talking through the synopsis. It's like he's really condescending to her. Like really condescending. Yes, absolutely. And it's a big old problem. Mm-hmm. It's, in my opinion, Nora's the hero of this piece and Nick's the villain. Yeah. He gets more time to be the one that we see his feelings. Like we see his feelings more. Because oh, so he gets those more. like emotional songs and stuff. I wonder if there's even something to, because you think of Arthur Lawrence's best work, the West Side Story work and the um, Gypsy work, mm-hmm. and Anyone Can Whistle, which as we discussed on our episode, has some problems, but is really nice. Mm-hmm. These are all with Sondheim around as well. Yes. You know what I mean? Right. And you know, I know I know Sondheim wasn't involved in writing the book itself to either West Side Story or, um, or Gypsy, but was involved in the lyrical process. And so we have to assume was working pretty closely yeah. with both his, um, compo- with both the composer and with Arthur Lawrence. Yeah. And Sondheim, in general, has always had a very good handle on um, female protagonists in his show, female protagonists and antagonists in his mm-hmm. shows, and making them really interesting, fully fleshed out characters. Right. So you wonder if he really struggled without Sondheim's guiding light? Yes, I agree. That is a really, really good point. As it stands for this, 
I think that this book is by far the biggest problem in this show. And this book should be burnt alive and never seen again. Yes. We're going to come back to this a lot because because it's such a dense book as well. There's so much talking mm -hmm. and so much information. It's going to pervade every other part of this conversation. Yeah. Let's <sighs> talk about the music and the lyrics. Hey, Paul, what's your favorite song from this musical? My favorite song is um, Chick Chick a Boom at the end of Act 2, which I think is catchy and I think it is respectful and I think <laughs> it's a cabaret standard that should come back today. Oh, sorry. I thought you asked what I think the worst thing in the world oh, yeah. is. <laughs> and that's the song Chick Chick Boom. Chick Chick a Boom. Not to be confused with Tick Tick Boom. Or the children's literature favorite Chicka Chicka Boom Boom. Or Chitty right? Chitty yes. Bang Bang. Also not to be confused with the um, delicious snack food Boom Chick Pop, which is a brand oh, of popcorn, which I like yes. a lot. <laughs> How long can we go on before Daphne's like, and we're gonna move on? <laughs> I'm contributing to the bit. I'm a bad influence right now. Exactly. <laughs> um, I... I like a lot of these songs fine. There's at least a few songs in this show where I'm like fine with them. Oh, I'm like, they're... I'm so surprised. I can't help it. There's part of me that always has to find something good in a show. And Charles, Charles Strauss is a nice composer. He's not always brilliant like he is in Annie, and he's definitely not brilliant here. But even when he's um, doing bad work, he's still... The, the songs are functional. You know what I mean? I can't, I can't fault someone who clearly has such a grasp over how to write a melody and put together a song. There's definitely nothing that stands out as being good, mm -hmm. or like really good rather. But if I'm going to award something on this creative team, Charles Strauss writes a functional song. It sounds dated for this time. Yes, absolutely it does. It sounds way older than Annie. And maybe that was on perp... No, because they're around the same time. Like this, technically speaking, Nick and Nora takes place like, what, five years after Annie? Another thing I'll mention in that regard that's really important that we're probably going to bring up a lot more as this episode goes on. At the same time as this, playing just down the street was City of Angels. I'm so glad you mentioned that because yeah. I actually heard some similarities. Oh yeah, but I think I would argue City of Angels is one of my favorite shows. It's also a show about um, a murder mystery. Very Other than that, very different from this show mm -hmm. and also uses style in its music to tell the story. In that case, kind of goes back to like 1930s, 1940s jazz age. Mm -hmm. um, and the composer of that, Cy Coleman, one of the greatest uh, Broadway composers, the most underrated Broadway composers of all time, does fantastic work. Yes. Where it sounds, I mean, it sounds dated now because it's 1991, but it very much sounds like a 1991 musical, mm -hmm. even though it's a throwback style. Yes. Whereas this does not sound like throwback at all. This mm. sounds like um, this sounds like a, a musical we would cover on a Reviver Die, if that, you know? Got it. What about you? Where's your head at for the music? You're somehow even less enthused than I am on it, I think. I don't understand where these songs are coming from. Right? Like, what? So our first group number, everybody, happens just before, like maybe it's the penultimate song before intermission. It takes so long. Absolutely. Our first up-tempo song is like the fourth or fifth song in the show, which I actually like that song. I think it was called Swell. Yeah, 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 yeah. I want to go on a wild goose chase musically as well as with the plot. And I just feel like there is such a disconnect. At this point, we've cracked the code of how to move action forward with song as well. Mm-hmm. And freaking, I suppose, if I think about it, that's never been Charles Strauss's, like, huge strong point. Not that he did the lyrics on this, but, like, even, like, it's always kind of a little bit like the song just gets plopped down in there. Yes. But Annie does it a lot better than this. Yeah, and I also wonder, too, like, there was a lot of um, talking, un like, over a vamp. And then having to jump in with one yeah. one random sung line. And I thought that was like really distracting and and not useful. Every time a song started, um, almost without exception, I think, as I looked down at the song list, I was like, I can just skip this mm -hmm. and then get back to the book and we'll continue the plot. You know exactly. what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. I'm not going to miss anything by skipping two minutes into the future here. And I struggle with that in theater in general, like in yeah. musical theater. If I was to play devil's advocate, and I don't think this is the case, but just to, to play devil's advocate, 
I would wonder if maybe that's kind of they're trying to throw back to like to actual Noel Coward plays where he would write mm. these plays that had these songs in them, but they weren't functioning as musical theater the way we understand it today. They were like parlor songs, right? Like a exactly, okay. exactly, yeah. And so maybe maybe they're going for like a parlor song feel here, but which I could see for the way they did the opening, like with the two yes. of them just dancing and yeah. singing and drinking and stuff. And I think they did that at the end of the play as well. Like they buttoned it the yep. same as they opened it, which also then yep. leads me to believe like, oh God, this happened, like this exact story is going to happen again in an alternate universe. Like this is the never ending loop, the infinite <laughs> previews. Like this is, it just keeps going. Oh my God. <laughs> Nick and Nora is just a, is it's, an infinite playlist. It's never, still going. never destined to end. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, but I can see what you're saying. And I think that if that was the case, they didn't do it well, but they did try, you know? Yeah. Okay. I don't have much to say about the lyrics. Do you? I think that Richard Maltby Jr. is a very bizarre creator who's been involved in a wide variety of very bizarre projects. Yes. Once in a while, it's something that's really interesting. Um, in general, it's something that is, in my opinion, a big miss. Uh, it's tough for me to write him off entirely when there's such interesting stuff, especially in his collaborations with uh, David Shire, mm-hmm. that are like, well, that's brilliant. That's fantastic. There's like bits of Closer Than Ever and bits of Big uh, that are like, oh, that's awesome. Yes. But even, I probably like Closer Than Ever more than many of our colleagues. And even then, there's big problems with that show. There's big problems with Big, which we'll get to, I'm sure, sure at some point. Oh, we will. <laughs> I this, I think, yeah. sorry, I do want to say quickly Please. what you were alluding to, which is when you find that person to collaborate with that really, like, sets you on the right path. Like, the way that Maltby and Shire are together, the way that maybe, like, yeah. Lawrence and Sondheim were, uh, and yep. Mencken and, and Ashman, like, those kinds oh, of yeah. pairings, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. that are really successful. And obviously, Strauss and Maltby just maybe aren't it. I'm I'm inclined to think so as well. Richard Maltby was kind of the uh, really coming up at this point and the really exciting um, collaborator closer than ever, if my dates are correct, is like just an enormous off-Broadway success at this point. Um, and he's like, like, think of it as like Jason Robert Brown getting parade. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. So that said, I don't know, like five monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, let's do it for real. Okay, I think we should separate the book from the music and lyrics. I agree completely. Okay, so Paul, out of 10 playbills, how many monkeys are you giving this book? Zero. Absolutely. Uh, there is in there is no room there's no room in any era for a um for a show that uses racism and misogyny this um in this kind of problematic way. Yeah. There's, there's no room in any time, especially not in 1991. That's way too late for that. And it doesn't try to tackle it or examine it in any way. Yes. We, we can't abide that. That's terrible. Right. What about you? I won't judge you if you um if there's if there's some merit to giving it a monkey or something. Well, I was your, gonna um, give house. it a monkey because yeah. there was words on the page and actors got up and said those words and there yep. was a story that made it onto the stage, which to me is worth a monkey because someone Arthur Lawrence got it on paper. Absolutely, he sat down, he wrote something, and. The creative process should be celebrated even when it results in something that is despicable. Have you seen the movie Knives Out? Uh, yeah, I absolutely have. It's fantastic. It's incredible. And I thought of Knives Out so much yes. as I was researching this show. As a good example of a like way to kind of do that style of um, story. Absolutely. Knives Out dissects this genre and deconstructs this genre in such an interesting way. And also like... Those sort of reminiscent of like the Agatha Christie, P.D. James, like mystery stuff where it's like, really, you couldn't even didn't want to didn't want to look to those for a hint on how to do something right. And so the reason I love Knives Out and why Knives Out works so much is because it takes this this trope of the um, the staff who's a person of color um, who is maybe treated in a um, really disrespectful way mm-hmm. and it deconstructs it. It um, has Marla in Knives Out being the one who's inheriting all the money. Yes. And everyone, the whole piece is a deconstruction of this rich family's relationship with her as a, uh, as a staff member. Absolutely. And it really centers her and centers her voice. And it's awesome. It's fantastic. This show 
just says, well, that's the way it is in these stories. So that's what we're going to do. Right. Okay, good. Yeah. I'm so glad that Great. you had like similer feelings. I feel exactly I the same. Absolutely. Yep. Let us also now grade the music and lyrics. Yes. So out of 10 playbills, how many monkeys are you giving this music and lyrics? Three. Maybe 3.5. Okay. You know, like I like I expressed before, Charles Strauss just farts functional songs. You know what I mean? He freaking blinks and there's a... Uh, a charming chord progression sure. that um, that's going to serve itself, and that that can't be discounted. And so I have a very hard time totally faulting a composer who attaches himself to a lot of bad projects, but is at the end of the day a very good composer. Yeah, he's making stuff. I don't care for Richard Maltby Jr.'s lyrics, so that's why we're below five. I was gonna say four. Yeah, yeah, I can I can accept a four. Talk. Yeah, because I think if I listened to the recording, I would feel a little better about it even like i'm yeah yeah just to really hear the clarity of the music it is a nice recording and jonathan tunick's orchestration work is nice as well and really elevates the songs absolutely should we go to the direction in choreo (laughs) absolutely directed by arthur lawrence welcome back from when you just wrote the script (laughs) musical and vocal direction by jack lee choreographed by tina paul The associate musical director was Patrick Scott Brady, and the assistant choreographer was Luis Perez. God bless them. There you go. Absolutely. Um, Did a lot of work. It was probably a really... Can you imagine working for doing a two-month run where you're going into rehearsals every day and doing rewrites, and you're the assistant choreographer, so you're trying to keep track of this new music and everything, then finally you're open. Have a champagne, relax, get ready to, like collect your royalty on the week every on the run every week and um like maybe go in and do maintenance once a week or something and then it doesn't even last a week you know it lasts one week i'm just thinking about how long it would have taken to even stage a first pass of this play yeah right like they are moving so much and they're touching props and they're interacting with sets and each other like it's so much stuff And they were, from what I understand, throughout this process, rewriting and changing things pretty significantly day after day. Like, you don't do a preview Mm -hmm. process that long for a show that's working. No, God, no. And, you know, you hear about um, Spider-Man doing this exact same thing and it being a really tough thing where they would, like, be building a new show during the day in rehearsals one week and then performing the old show in the evening for the audiences. So um, creative team members and um, cast members had to be building one show and then performing a similar but different show every night. I can't. That's so unsafe. And it sounds so taxing as yeah. well. Can you imagine how exhausting that would be? Like when you're touring a show and you're yep. making modifications based on like the venue that you're in, fine. Yep. That's one thing. Absolutely. But making modifications to story and spacing and oh. lyrics and stuff. So- like, oh my gosh, it's just... It's so much. And putting it in front of a paying audience every night. Yes. That amount of pressure is... I can... I've only only ever tasted that um, in my work. And I can only imagine... That's not healthy. That's not good for you. No. There is a massive conflict of interest here. Having Arthur Lawrence directing and being the book writer. Because when you are the one who is directing it and you're hearing what people are laughing at and what people are getting every night and then you go and you have the power to then revise that book and make those changes like who is Arthur Lawrence answering to like there's no one to maybe rein him in and be like hey everything's fine or even not everything everything's not fine but for the sake of this show you need to just let it sit and let it open yes I could not agree more and I think that's an astute observation Based on the reading I've done, it seems like Arthur Lawrence was kind of poison on this production for that exact reason. Mm. There's this article inside the troubled uh, preview process of Nick and Nora. It's like written during the preview process to explore this phenomenon. And um, they got they talked with Barry Boswick a lot. Barry Boswick, who plays Nick, very famous actor who we're going to talk a lot about in a moment. And he talks about how stressful it is and how Arthur Lawrence... One of the tactics he was using is he would go into rehearsal every day as a director. Um, This is the rehearsal and the preview process after they've done a show the night before. And be like, this isn't working. This show is terrible and it's your fault, Barry Boswick. Like, what are you doing? It's your fault. 
And Barry had to sit him down and be like, and he talks about this kind of in a, like a, oh, I just had to sit him down and be like, well, listen, Art, Arthur, Artie, that, that, that's not what works for me. You, you can't say that to me. And like, but you hear this. And in this day and age, at least it's like, that's horrendous. That's a horrendous thing to say to someone. That's not the way you do this. So I think that you're right on the money is the point of all of this is Arthur Lawrence was very close to this. And I think had a passion about it for some reason. Maybe he maybe he had a lot of money in it. I don't know. Maybe he was oh, even perhaps. Uh, but man, he really seems like he was a terror throughout this process. I can definitely see that happening. What do you think of his direction? Um, it's appropriate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like I think you need all of the movement and the mm-hmm. whatever yeah. that they did. So yeah, I think it's fine. I think it matches. It's tough to separate the two because he's the book writer as well. Where I'm like. I wish things could have just slowed slowed down a little bit at times and like we could have um, explored the relationship between Nick and Nora. And then I get to thinking like, and then why didn't you just write it better as well? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> totally. Yeah, I agree. I don't think the direction is abominable by any means, but I think it's medium at best and certainly nothing to write home about. You know which scene I really liked, though, for both yeah. the direction and the choreo was, and I don't want to forget the name of the song. Oh, it's called A Busy Night at Lorraine's, and it's where they're trying to work out how, because all of these um, suspects visit Lorraine at some point on the evening yes. that she's murdered. And so they're reenacting the different scenarios, yeah. and Lorraine is, like, really involved, and so they're, like... Get down. No, stand up. Get down. Stand up. And she's like up and down and up and down. I really liked that scene. I agree completely. That's really good. That was when it was like really working for me. Absolutely. That's it's like a like a farce, right? It's like a like a door. Yes. There, there's elements that touch on kind of like door slamming farce. And when it's doing that well, which isn't often, but in scenes like that, I think it's very charming. I think it's great. I agree completely. Mm-hmm. And in the overcoat part because that's a really long song with a few Mm. different sort of like musical motifs but the overcoat section of that where they start to unravel the thread of like oh well that person could have just taken ed's trench coat and hat and worn it in the house and then they all come on stage wearing these trench coats and hats and are doing this like really cute choreo i was like oh this i like like i'm in it remnants there of a really charming show Mm -hmm. that somehow just doesn't actually come through. Yeah. yeah. So you, you started talking about the choreo a little bit as well. It's kind of nice. Yeah. I think there was there was either too much for the way this play was written or not enough to make me like it. Yeah, that's a good call. Like when it was really working, like in the Overcoat song, or even some of those tango moments where they were like doing the tango and having these the dialogue stuff. Mm-hmm. Like I always love that. Yep. But that was kind of it for staging there was that maybe that one other number but i would the big ensemble number in act one mm-hmm. where i was like oh yeah this is okay yeah i don't know yeah. i it was either really good or really not good i compare it to for some reason i find myself coming back to uh, or thinking of guys and dolls oh. and comparing it to guys and dolls a little bit i think maybe because guys and dolls is another kind of fast talking crime story <laughs> yeah and is also doesn't start with a big old ensemble number and we don't even really get a big old ensemble thing till we get to what's whatever the club's called um with adelaide the kit um no that's no not that's that's what i thought that's where i was first oh my god that's so bad the hot box hot box you're so right the hot box yeah totally yeah um but they use a lot of strategies to get around that and keep us invested right off the top Mm -hmm. first of all with um is a really iconic musically interesting yes and very um very fun and then you get all the gangsters in there and you know even though uh oldest established is not like a super important song to what the um what the show is it sets the scene and gives us this whole big group of guys uh singing and dancing um so even though it's not really a traditional here we are it's an opening number it gets you in as an audience instead of this, which just languishes and languishes for so long with no energy. So I wouldn't necessarily say it's the choreographer's fault that it's like that. I think, you know, she was doing what was dictated in the script and story as it exists. Yep. And sometimes it was really good and sometimes not. 
I feel the same way about um, Boom Chick Boom at the end. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, I think that song is terrible. It's all about how this uh, young woman is being sexually coerced for um, career advancement. Yes. But I mean, I don't know. The choreographer yeah, did it. Absolutely. You know what I mean? There's, there was no yeah. way around it. So The only way out is through. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> You've got to assume at some point, like we've got the choreography team and the music team or something having drinks after previews one night and being like, "Do we? are we going in tomorrow? Can we do this? I guess we got to, right? The only way out is through. <laughs> Oh. Yeah, that's all I need to say about the direction and choreo. Do you have anything to add? The only thing I'll add is one specific point I remember from this article where Barry Bostwick is talking about here. They're halfway through this extended preview process. And he's like, you know, I think I think the show's getting better. Um, not as many people are leaving at intermission now. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and people actually come backstage to see me after the show, which wasn't happening oh. for those first few weeks. I was really lonely. But now people mm. actually come to say hi. So it, it seems like it's getting better. Point of order, he actually said, I was a lonely boy. And <laughs> yes, I, so I was a very was lonely boy. boy. <laughs> oh my god! The applause at the end sounds genuine. Right. It's, yes. it's so weird. It is so unusual. Uh, <laughs> okay, let's do some ratings. Okay. So, Paul, for the direction yep. and choreo together. Yep. Right? Yeah, let's do it together. Because there's not a ton of choreo. No, there isn't. So out of 10 playbills, how many monkeys are you giving this direction and choreo? I think that the direction is a solid 3.5 or 4. Mm-hmm. Doesn't hurt anything. Certainly doesn't help anything. Actually, no, let's say 4 because charming on um like the flashbacks. Mm-hmm. And I think the choreo is a solid 6 or 6.5. I don't know, I've created this narrative in my head of the choreographer being beleaguered and like, <laughs> okay, let's, I'll do something out of that. I'll make something out of that. Sure. Yes. Um, and so I feel a lot of sympathy for this character I've created in my head. Oh, yes. So let's, let's call it a five. I agree. I think it's a five. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Good. Look, I, don't, I just, like, I imagine you and I working with this faceless nightmare creative team and just being like, <laughs> okay, let's do something. Like, that's something, right? Like, looking at each other in the rehearsal (laughs) hall. All right, here we go. What's the choreo for the hat number today? Uh, Speaking of hats, let's talk about the design. Yeah. Okay, who who designed this show? How is that segue? Okay. Design by Douglas W. Schmidt. Costume design by Taoni V. Aldridge. Welcome back. Lighting design by Jules Fisher. Sound design by Peter Fitzgerald. And hair and makeup design by Robert De Niro. Not that De Niro. Are you kidding me? Yeah, Robert De Niro. D-I-N-I-R-O. Oh, very good. Okay, And I think we've talked about this Robert De Niro before. Oh, I'm sure we have. Yeah. Chess, I think. Yep, that would make sense. Oh, yeah, that sounds familiar. All right, let's talk about the design. Do it, Paul. You go. Um, lots of chaise longues. So many. Lots of like garden terraces. Um, mm-hmm. like bar carts. I think I don't mind the set design. All told, it's once again old, um, old boots. So it's kind of hard to see exactly what's going on. But I don't know. Lots of like medium-sized moving pieces that moved on and off, mm-hmm. which is kind of. To be expected for a musical of this size and budget level at this time. Yes. Like this is just at the start of the mega musical, a giant tire flying in the sky. <laughs> so that's not like an ex, that's not an expectation to be met yet. You know what I mean? Yes. And likewise, the costumes are good period costumes for that period. Yeah. The lighting design was pretty nice, I think, from what I saw. They had a revolve. Did they? <laughs> yeah, at the big tamboo, the the stage. Like, oh, turned. yeah. And you oh, could like yeah. see through, which I love. I love that idea. Oh, I was so checked out by that point. I was so uh, upset with this show. <laughs> they had that cute fire hydrant gag where the fire hydrant, the they fire. were like walking the dog and then. That's a great joke. That's that such a good joke. so good. It was so, so funny. The, the joke is there's a couple of characters and um i've been saving this but we've got a we've got a dog in this show the dog's a very good boy he's the best uh performer the by best far. dog best dog yeah. and they're doing a bit where they're taking the dog for a walk and they're all just standing still and like the scenery is moving behind them and there's a fire hydrant that moves behind them um and it is very funny and very good and i love it yes so i like that <laughs> gag yeah absolutely <laughs> 
every okay i thought the set was really appropriate like i thought they did what they were supposed to do they ticked all the boxes but i also struggled because i felt like it was difficult for me to differentiate the different living rooms and terraces oh that's an excellent point like they sort of all blended together for me yeah i probably not appropriate for this show um or especially considering its development process but i would have maybe wanted to see like a little more creativity with the set and the design like once again when you're batting against city of angels which has such an interesting design city of angels the cool conceit design is that when we're in the real world talking about this because it's about an author who's written a um a story that's being licensed turned into a movie who's written a noir story that storyline's all in color but then half the show is the story that he's written about this detective this hard-boiled noir detective and that's all in black and white in like a black and white uh, black and gray um color palette and um they're all um, gray makeup and everything so once again you've got this is the standard that your contemporaries are setting you know what i mean we're just coming out of the 80s there's been a big design boom in musical theater you gotta keep up you know what i mean or the opposite you know sure but that wasn't happening yet the stripped down thing no exactly i don't think we were there yet no so it's that weird like middle spot where you're sort of stuck feeling like you have to yeah you have to do it all and you've got to do it big yeah and so they kind of played it safe and it's like eh. and again like this is me having seen sort of like a blurry not so clear version of the show so again maybe if we would have been there in person or seen more clear footage we could have we would have had a different feeling about it but that was just my initial I'll give them the benefit of the doubt on this because I really like that style if they just played it straight down the middle I probably would have had a nice time looking at it great yeah well there we go yeah out of Oh. oh, you've been asking so much this, um, this, uh... Okay, fine, you ask. Okay. You ask me. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So, Jill, out of, out of ten playbills, how many monkeys would you give the design of this show? Seven. Yeah, I agree. Six, and then one for a really good, uh, fire hydrant gag. Great. I think that design gags are the best gags of all. <laughs> <laughs> and they don't get celebrated enough for how funny designers can be. That's true. Let them have a gag, for goodness sakes. Absolutely. Good job, designers. You might be my favorite part of this show. Yeah. Well, okay. We're about to talk about the dog. Dog is so good. I'm going to nominate this dog for a Tony. Yeah. A bony. A bo- Ha! <laughs> So the dog in the show, the dog's name, Nick and Nora have a dog named uh, Asta, who's great. Yeah. And Asta is played by Riley. And Riley's a very good boy and is featured very prominently and is excellent. Good job, Riley. Is Riley some sort of like terrier thing with curly hair? It was hard to tell. Yeah. Oh, Riley is a perfect dog. Good job, Riley. You win the Boney Award for Best Featured Pup. In a musical. <laughs> the award is in the shape of a bone and it is edible for this very good boy. <laughs> oh it's peanut God. butter flavored. No speech, just chomping. <laughs> in the same interview, uh, Barry Bostwick talks about acting with Riley and how Riley was very good. But there was also an understudy dog who and sometimes Riley wasn't feeling up to performing. Oh my God. So the understudy would go on. But the understudy didn't know any of the tricks. So Barry Boswick just had his, had the understudy dog on a leash and had to like lead him around the stage to like the right blocking. Oh. So I'd like to shout out that understudy dog as well for also doing a very good job understudying his hard work. It is hard. <laughs> oh. One might even say it's an underdog. <laughs> That's it. Podcast is over. We're going home. I know. That might be all the jokes I have about dogs. Okay. We do need to talk about the performances. And not just the canine ones. There's a lot of good performances in this show and a lot of heavy hitters, actually. So we have our Winnipeg connection, Joanna Gleason, born here. I did not know that. You didn't? I swear to God, I did not know that Joanna Gleason was a pegger. Joanna Gleason's father, Monty Hall, was like the game right, show host. Right, 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 right. So he was born yes. and raised like went to U of M, yes. like worked for some grain company here. And then yeah, when totally. Joanna is the first first child i guess so i I think joanna has some siblings but when joanna was 
a little bit older, maybe like 10. I can't recall actually yeah. when, but they moved to New York and then LA. So yeah. I did know that Joanna was Monty Hall's daughter. I had just forgotten that Monty Hall was from Winnipeg. Yeah, so there you go. Yeah. Hilarious. And yeah. it's kind of wonderful too to be like, to look at how many Winnipeggers have done, well, not only Broadway and currently on Broadway even, hi Andrea, yeah. but yeah. like how many Winnipeggers were involved in Sondheim's career. It like yeah. helps me feel even just more connected. Absolutely. Len Cariou and and Joanna Gleason. Yeah. It's if cool. I can if I can wax poetic for a second about this city and this province, which I love deeply with all my heart. Anyone who knows me knows I, I love Winnipeg so much. And it's a big part of it. I think we create really interesting, unique artists. And my, my pet theory is that because this is such a weird place to live. Throughout, throughout the year, you go, you get such extreme weather and you're just forced into conditions that you wouldn't necessarily choose just by virtue of living here. I think it's what, A, makes some people leave and rightfully so. It's definitely not for everyone. <laughs> but I think when you're, when you've got a week like we've had this past week of minus 50 all week, it's just, there's no reason to go outside. It's terrible. Mm-hmm. What else are you going to do except practice your instrument or read or just go a little bit weird in the head and get a different take on arts than anyone else in the country <laughs> has? You know what I mean? So true. I don't think it's a coincidence at all. I think that the Winnipeg artist is a unique thing. Even after you leave Winnipeg, you still have that unique arts voice that I think I love. And that's the reason why I'll probably never leave this city. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. Absolutely. It's special. So yeah, Joanna Gleason plays Nora pretty well. Yeah, Joanna Gleason's fantastic. Is a fantastic performer in general, hey? Very charismatic. I like her delivery and connection to text. I think it's really great. Well done, Joanna Gleason. And her husband, Chris Sarandon. They met on this show, I believe. Yes, they did. Showmance. Jack Skellington. Um, Jack, so he's the, the speaking voice of Jack Skellington, uh, Daphne? Yes. And also uh, Prince Humperdinck. Yep. Yeah. And Very the good. big bad yep. in the original Fright Night. Love. Uh, yep. And the list goes on. He is a wonderful character actor. And a great singer, which I <laughs> I wasn't expecting. That's exactly what I was just going to say. Because right? of Nightmare um, Before Christmas. Uh, Danny Elfman does the singing voice for Jack. Yeah. And so it's very weird to be like, oh, Chris Sarandon also would have done a great job. But that's really weird that they just didn't have him do it. I know. Yeah, yeah a very, very yeah. good performance by Chris Sarandon. Christine Baranski, yeah. as usual. Yeah. Martha May, who <laughs> in the house. Amazing. Um, Barry Bostwick is an interesting person. Has had an interesting career, hey? I agree. So he was Brad in Rocky Horror, the movie. In Rocky Horror Picture Show, yep. Yeah. He was the original Danny Zuko in the Broadway Grease. Oh, you're kidding me. Okay. Yeah, okay. right. Wow. Like, those are his big things, right? Like, that's what he's really known for. I really think so. didn't um didn't do much on Broadway after Grease. I believe this was his only return to Broadway after Grease. Oh, well, that's kind of sad. I like his singing voice a lot. I do too. And honestly, I think... Like we've expressed, the character of Nick in this show is just a shithead. It is just the worst. Oh, yeah. But I don't fault Barry Bostwick that, honestly. Oh, God, no. no. No, no. So, you know, maybe I spoke too soon about the designers being the hottest category here because I think there's a lot to love in... Oh, we, we haven't even talked about um, Faith Prince. Dear friend of the podcast. <sighs> I am a Dear friend returning to Timers Club. What was she in that we talked about last? She was in Disaster. Oh my god, that's right. Yeah. Faith Prince is goals. I oh, yeah. want to be Faith Prince when I grow up. From what the sense I've gotten was even in the most negative reviews, people were like, but Faith Prince is great. Oh, I'm obsessed with her. Absolutely. Really. She has mm-hmm. such a stellar singing voice too. And it's by all accounts, her performance in this is what got her the attention to go in as um, Adelaide in that Guys and Dolls revival. Uh, a few years later, oh. um, that revitalized both the musical Guys and Dolls and um, like shot rocketed her. She's just incredible in it. That is amazing. Yeah, these these actors are just remarkable. Deborah Monk, like, hi, welcome. Yep, absolutely. I can't. Th- this cast is wonderful. All of them. Maybe it's because they weren't as big of deals at the time, but these are 
like some pretty like for by Broadway standards, some heavy hitters, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. can you imagine every day going in for three months for this preview develop two months for this preview development process? They don't have to do that. They can go make a movie or something, you know what I mean? Exactly. I think that was a big part of a lot of what the reviewers were saying, too. Yeah. Like, look at this cast. Yeah. These poor, poor performers that have to go and do this every night. You did something really wrong if this was the result of a show that is fronted by Barry Boswick, Joanna Gleason, Baranski, and Faith Prince. Like. Like, you fucked it up. I don't know how. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Absolutely. Oh, love them all so much. I mean. And and Riley. And Freaking Riley. Riley who would. Every night. This is Riley's only credit, which makes sense. He left the business <laughs> after this. It was just... Well, it was, pretty stra- it was a stressful yeah. time. Absolutely, but... He just hated all the previews. <laughs> I believe... Um, what theater did this, uh, did this play in again, Jill? It was the Marquee. Yeah, Marquee. I believe there's a little patch of grass at the back of the Marquee. Stop. That's named after Riley now. It's the Riley Memorial there's Marquee. That's where he would go and do his peas and poops before the show. <laughs> It's also notably more yellow than the rest of the patch of grass. Exactly. <laughs> he gets oh K9 out of 10 playbills. K9 out of 10. Yes. Good job, Riley. Okay, so. Let's do but it, for yeah. reals. Yeah, for reals. Out of 10 playbills, how many monkeys are we giving these performances? I can't in good conscience go higher than seven, even after doing all of that. Really? I just, and I don't think it's their fault, so I don't want to. I don't want to penalize them, but also, you know, we're rating a show that's 30 years old at this point. I think they're they're going to be okay. No one's going to hold it yeah. against them. With a cast like this, I should have been in like Flynn. And I think they're just, they're facing obstacles that are too great for even performers of this caliber to um, to recover from. Right. So, you know, here's what I'll do. Seven, add one for Riley, because Riley is excellent. So I'm going to settle on an eight. And I am going to say nine. Yeah, great. I, I have no trouble... Um, Accepting that. Yeah. There's actually um, an interview that Riley gave uh, for the New York Times where he was asked, um, so how do you find this rehearsal process? And he said, rough. Oh, no. I love it. That's a good it. joke, producer Daphne. Thank you. <laughs> let's wrap this mother up. Okay, let's play some Tony trivia. Yes, Absolutely. So this is the part of the show where Jill is going to describe some other pieces that were in play in the Tonys this year, and she's going to give me hints, and I'm going to try to use the fact that I'm a uh, living Wikipedia page to remember what those are. Love it. So we'll we'll maybe try to do a few random things this time. Great. Fantastic. Okay. There were four nominees for Best Musical in the 1992 Tony Awards. So this would have been the... F- These are shows that took place in 1991. Yeah. So this is the 46th Tony Awards. So this is shows that would have taken place between... I think they would... It would probably be like June and April is usually the cutoff, I think. Sure. Yep. So yeah. June of 91 until April of 92. Hosted by Angela Lansbury? No, but the person who hosted also at this Tony Awards won the best actress in a leading role, like in a play. Oh. For the play Death and the Maiden. Um, There's no world where I'm going to know who that is. I'm afraid. <laughs> I remember this actor as Cruella DeVille in the live action. Oh, freaking Glenn Close. Yes. Yeah. So Glenn Great. Close both hosted and won this year, which I good think is a boss move. That's an incredible move. Absolutely. <laughs> so good yeah. job, Glenn Close. So you mentioned this before. This was, because um, I'm going to get to the the four um, best musical nom- nominees in a moment. But totally. you mentioned this Faith Prince this being sort of the vehicle to get her yeah. to Guys and Dolls. And yeah. you said a few years later, but actually it was early 1992. Was it actually? Yes. So it was right after. Right after. Okay. Which means, and this is more hot goss than trivia because you <laughs> yeah. already mentioned it. Yeah. So she won the Tony for her portrayal of Adelaide. That's at so this funny. Tony Awards. After having been in this enormous flop that is also represented at these Tony Awards. Yep. Probably based on the reception would have been their submission for best supporting. Right. At least she got her her due, yeah. you know? 
So we have four yeah. best musicals. So obviously Guys and Dolls is not one of them because it, yeah. it was a revival. City of Angels wins? Nope. Okay. So give me, give me, give me hints. City of Angels was actually not on this list. Really? Yeah. So I wonder if maybe it was the year before. It might be. I think you're right. I think it's like the 91 Tonys. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. this is clue number one. This is a Gregory Hines show. It's a kind of, it reminds me of a sandwich you can make. Okay. This is a really random one that you probably yeah. won't get. It reminds you of a sandwich. This is a really hard one. Is it a condiment? Yeah. Yeah. Is it Jelly's Last Gem? Yeah! Oh yeah! Good job, Paul. Right. That's like so hard. <laughs> oh, yeah. Absolutely. So, yes. Jelly's Last Great Gem. Great show. What an interesting so show. So interesting. And yeah. I, I would love to research it more, even just like on my own time, because I love Gregory Hines. I love the work that he did. And I really like everything I've seen so far from that show. So that one was nominated. So this one, I actually don't know anything about it. It's like, I don't even know if I could make a game of this. You know, the guy who owns the bar in The Simpsons? Uh, Mo. There's many of them in the name of this musical. <laughs> <laughs> That's very funny. So it's five guys named Mo. Yeah. <laughs> That's so interesting. So another musical that's just, that's an exploration of an early jazz R&B pioneer. Yeah. Great. And also a really nice show, a really interesting show. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. Um, okay. This next one is a fin. Uh, falsettos. There you go. Bingo. Yeah, absolutely. One of my favorite shows. It's great. Yeah. Um, and then the final one, one best musical, Trunk Show. I was going to guess Will Rogers Follies. Uh-uh. 42nd Street? No. The other one. It's a stro. Oh. A strowman. No, I'm having a brain fart right now. I for some I was so sure it was Will Rogers Follies that now I can't I can't readjust. Nope, give it to me. Crazy for you. Crazy for you. Okay. So this is the year Crazy for You took it over Jelly's last jam. Yes. Wow, that's wild. I know. What a like bonkers time. Right? So you said they were nominated for something. I thought they were nominated for best score. And Falsettos took it and Falsettos is fantastic. And it really is. the opposite of this show in every way where it's all <laughs> score and every single sentence advances the plot. And yes. it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Totally. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, oh. that's that Tony year. And so you just look at that and you're like, Nick and Nora, come on. Yeah. Like this is a really interesting People are doing such cool things. And like an emergence of um, of, uh, of black art, of art that's celebrating black artists with Jelly's Last Jam and five, guy, five guys named Mo. And you're like, really? At the same time, you're going to put this bullshit down. Yeah. <laughs> like, like <laughs> get on board, man. <laughs> yeah. Look around you, everybody. Yeah. God. All right. Final thoughts on Nick and Nora and the infinite preview process. I want to get a t-shirt made that is Nick and Nora's infinite previews and just see if anyone notices Absolutely. when I wear it around. <laughs> the uh, the poster for that's like Michael Sarah and Kat Denning listening to an iPod together, right? So it's like Barry Bostwick and um, freaking um, Joanna Gleason sharing, sharing an iPod. Oh my God. <laughs> oh, I love it. Okay, so there are two more questions to ask. Absolutely. Question number one is, should this be a musical? Yes, I think that this genre and this type of story and potentially even the Thin Man stories could be an effective musical. We see glimmers of fun here and glimmers of something very charming. What do, what do you think? No, I think no. Okay. I think it should very be good. a play. Yeah. I would like to see it as a play because this book actually sings on its own. Yeah. To me, it doesn't actually need the music to, to flesh it out more. And as you're watching it, every time they get to a song, you're like, oh, really? I know. Every oh, That's not every the way time. you want to feel in a musical. God, no. <laughs> so that's my feeling about it. Yeah. Of I course, can, it I, would take some major revisions in terms of like the structure of it. But yeah, I, I do like the idea of it as a play. Well, we have one. We've, we've got all the evidence. We've, we've looked at the receipts. We've talked it over. We've made our cases. Jill, is this a total flop? Is this a secret bop? Or is this so bad we need to make it stop? Uh, I just think it needs to stop. 
at this it point. It needs to stop. Get yeah. it out of here. Yeah, get out of here. Let this be the last time anyone ever friggin' talks about Nick and Nora, unless you're talking about the Infinite Playlist, which is kind of ch- a charming little early 2000s movie. <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, there was like an attempt at like a professional production in like San Francisco. There absolutely was. Yep. And I don't think anyone talked about it much in any meaningful way so there we go i wonder if it's been rewritten dear god i hope it's been rewritten right i think i saw something of like they were doing just a few years ago doing like a radio play version of it at 54 below or something that's kind of a nice format once again with major rewrites but that's kind of maybe a format where this would uh work a little bit better i think so again i'd be open to it like, without the racism. Yeah. And the racist content. And the misogyny as well. Let's, oh, God. Let's let's figure out a way where... Like, I, I love the idea of a husband and wife detective solving team. Yes. And, like, maybe there's, like, little squabbles of, like, oh, their their domestic issues fall through into, um, into, their, um, into their work. Yeah, sure. But nothing like whatever is going on here with <laughs> Nick gaslighting and I actively know. trying to beat down Nora. <laughs> God. It's a disaster. It really is. So with those things removed, this really has a shot. So what we're just saying is we, <laughs> we like the idea. We like mysteries as a genre is basically what we're saying. <laughs> and the dog and about five minutes of the yep, actual show. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. We like the dog. We like that's it. That's the end. That's it. That's Nick and Nora. Wow. Be sure to tune in in a couple weeks, y'all. We've got a really cool episode coming. We're going to talk about Diana. We're going to celebrate the recently closed Diana, celebrate all the artists who are doing incredible work, who are making um, making art in a very scary pandemic time, and use the tiny platform we have here to celebrate their art, even though it closed too soon. And we're going to do that with the help of a dear special guest, Rafi Rosenberg, who lives in New York and uh, had a chance to sit down in the theater and see it twice. Oh. What an invaluable guest. Absolutely. To hear from Rafi about her experience um, seeing it twice, the differences maybe between the version we got to see and the version that she got to see, which is really exciting. Absolutely. And I'm really looking forward to to chatting with her yeah. about this. This is, the, I think, the first show we've done where there is a pro shot version available on Netflix. Yes. So that's the version that Jill and I are going to be referencing. If you want to get on board... Give it a watch before you listen to the episode and you'll know what we know. Ugh, how fun was this? This was great. Thank you for listening, everyone. Please stay safe. Connect if it's something that's healthy for you. Uh, Have a laugh. Be kind to yourselves. See you next time. Hi, everyone. This is producer Daphne speaking. Thank you all so much for listening to Monkeys and Playbills the show where we take a look at Broadway musicals that had 100 performances or fewer before closing. To learn more about the show, you can follow us on Instagram at monkeysandplaybillspod, on Twitter at monkeyplaybills, or email us at monkeysandplaybillspod at gmail.com. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash monkeysandplaybills. Fun fact, we also now have merch available. Visit the link in our description to learn how you can get your hands on some pretty cool friend of the podcast mugs, t-shirts, hoodies, and more. Monkeys and Playbills is proud to be a Village Conservatory for Music Theatre podcast. Original music for the show is provided by Paul DeGers, and the show is produced and edited by Daphne Finlayson. Thank you all so much for listening, and join us next week where we take on Diana the Musical. <laughs>